My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. Yes, I know, another episode within three days. I've been thinking about this object for a while, so I decided I was just going to record it sooner than later. Now, in the last episode, we discussed how the church began the process of leaving Nauvoo. This was, in most ways, a forced removal, but like we discussed, the leadership taught that it was a glorious emergency, as there was land destined for them in the West. But before we dive into our object today, I wanted to discuss a very important topic, pro sports mascots. Now, I'm not talking about the fan guy dressed up as the mascot. I'm talking about the team mascot, like the Browns and the Texans. I was thinking about this because uh, the other day I woke up early in the morning and there was an NFL game on. The Eagles were playing the Jaguars in England. Being the deep thinker that I am, I started to think that it was funny that Jacksonville chose the mascot Jaguars, considering there are no Jaguars in Florida. So I looked up the reason. Turns out it is because fans thought the name was cool and they voted on it in a fan poll. Kind of lame. Turns out that voting for a mascot is a popular way of letting the fans feel involved. For example, when the Boston Celtics were choosing their mascot, the Celtic was on the table as there were so many Irishmen in Boston. However, the Celtics just barely edged out the number two option in that fan poll. Luckily for them too, because I just can't imagine Larry Bird being quite the legend if he had played for the Unicorns, as that was almost chosen as the mascot by the fans in Boston. The Eagles, however, who are playing the Jaguars, have a great story. I like when teams pick a mascot because it has some ties to the city or history of that area. Many teams just kept the name from a transplanted organization that was sold to new owners in a new city, like the Lakers came from Minnesota, where there are actually lakes, the Dodgers come from Brooklyn, where fans had to dodge the trolleys on the way to the stadium, And the Utah Jazz come from Louisiana, where there is actual jazz music. But most NFL mascots, especially the older ones, have a cool history. So take Philadelphia Eagles. They chose the Eagle mascot because in 1933, the Philadelphia Yellow Jackets football team had declared bankruptcy. When Burt Bell took over as the new owner, he drew inspiration from FDR's National Recovery Administration Act in the New Deal. The logo for FDR's Recovery Act was an eagle. This team needed a new deal or a new start, so they adopted the eagle as their logo too, and it's stuck ever since. So let's cover just a couple other interesting team mascots. The Detroit Lions are Lions because when they started their franchise in 1934, they thought that since the lion was the monarch of the jungle, they wanted to be the monarch of the NFL. So the Lions. Lame. Obviously, it didn't work, and now look what they're left with. The Dallas Cowboys chose their logo as their third option. It was first the Rangers, but that was confusing as there was already a minor league team called the Dallas Rangers in that area. Not sure how they missed that. They then chose the Steers, but at the last minute, the team president said they didn't want people saying that the team had been castrated when they lost. Good move. So they settled on Cowboys, and that works much better, and it sounds better than Texans. Now, my favorite team mascot in pro sports is the 49ers. This isn't just because I'm such a big Steve Young fan, but 
but because they chose their team name based on when the city growth really took off. And that was due to the gold rush of 1849. An awesome name and very original. But what if I were to say to you that the 49ers can thank the Mormons for their fantastic name? Because a team name couldn't have been chosen without the gold rush, and the gold rush couldn't have taken place without the first newspaper in San Francisco that started publishing stories of gold-rich mountains to inspire early cash-strapped Americans. In the last episode, we discussed Manifest Destiny and how the church was sort of caught up in it. In 1847, when the U.S. would annex California and begin to look for settlers, the first settlers would come from the ocean. They'd be the first to settle an Anglo-American colony and begin the building up of San Francisco. Who were these people? They were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and their hard work would eventually give us the 49ers. I know, kind of a stretch, but let's go with it. Today's object is the ship Brooklyn. So what is the ship Brooklyn, and how did it come about? At the end of 1845 and going into 1846, As Brigham Young and the Twelve were organizing all the members of the church in Nauvoo, or the city of Joseph, the cash-strapped members in the northeastern states gathered together in New York to determine how they could unite themselves with the rest of the members heading west. The problem on their hand was that it was late winter of 1845 and they didn't have enough money to purchase the proper supplies to cross the states. Now, as Parley P. Pratt who'd been tasked by the Quorum of the Twelve to oversee the church's growth in New York after Joseph Smith's death, left for Nauvoo, the highest-ranking church official left in the state was Samuel Brannan. Brannan was a printer by trade and had been printing a Mormon newspaper called The Prophet. However, he knew the members couldn't stay in New York, so he proposed that instead of traveling across the states, they board a ship and sail south around the tip of South America and up to California. Brandon was of the opinion that if the church was headed west and away from America, they were likely going to California, a Mexican territory at the time. So, Brandon and the members of the church in New York pooled together their funds and contracted with Captain Abel Richardson to board his ship and make the voyage to California. His ship was called the Ship Brooklyn, our object. So on February 4th, 1846, the same day as the members were exiting Nauvoo and crossing the frozen Mississippi and heading west, the members in New York were packing up and setting sail. This voyage would be one of the first by an American passenger ship to sail from New York around South America and to California. The voyage would contain 238 members of the church, broken up into 70 men, 68 women, and 100 children. There were also 12 non-members aboard the ship with Captain Richardson and his crew. So, what was the ship Brooklyn like? The ship was 125 feet long and weighed over 445 tons. As the ship was transforming from a cargo vessel to a passenger vessel, the space between the decks was converted into living quarters. There was a long table, some backless benches, and sleeping cubicles with bunks that were built in there. Everything was securely bolted to the deck. They packed it with food, water, provisions, and Samuel Brandon brought his printing press and additional tools for establishing a new colony. The ship would cost the members $1,200 a month. Now, historians have hypothesized that it's possible that the voyage of the Brooklyn was the longest continuous sea journey 
of any religious organization in history. This trip would take the members over six months and would cover over 24,000 miles. Just by way of context, when the pilgrims crossed the Atlantic in 1620, that voyage would be 3,000 miles, and they were only on the water for 63 days. The Brooklyn would cross the equator on both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, and it would go from the icy Antarctic waters to the tropical islands of Hawaii and then to California. Now, what was the journey on the Brooklyn like? The members on the ship kept strict rules, regulations, and routines. This would help ensure that all tasks were done, things were well organized, and the 100-plus children were kept under control. The Mormons maintained sacrament meetings, prayer meetings, and they even formed a choir. Most passed the long, slow days at sea reading books from the ship library. However, voyage-wise, things were trouble from the onset. Four days out, a massive storm engulfed the ship Brooklyn. Captain Richardson would record in his journal that it was the worst storm that he'd ever seen. As the storm beat upon the ship, the waves got bigger, and the log would report that they were the size of mountains. All the passengers were ordered below to stay in their rooms, and after three straight nights, the storm was only getting worse, and so the captain, fearing that they were going to die, went below deck to tell the Mormons to prepare for death. Apparently, it was that bad. So according to the story, the captain said he found the members praying and singing hymns to block out the noise of the storm. One member even told him, quote, We were sent to California and we shall get there, end quote. Inspired by their faith and bravery, the captain said he then went and fought on and made it through the storm. Now, when the storm finally ceased, the ship Brooklyn found itself near the Cape Verde Islands off the northwest coast of Africa. They'd almost been blown across the Atlantic. But they pressed on. As they made their way towards the tip of South America, over seven passengers died. Some from scarlet fever, which had broken out, others from tuberculosis, one from old age, and an infant died from dehydration. But it wasn't all death. Sarah Burr would have a baby and name him John Atlantic Burr. A great name. After rounding the southern tip of South America, the ship Brooklyn was headed with all speed for Valparaiso, Chile. Rats had infested the ship, cockroaches were in everything, and on top of that, the drinking water had become corrupted. According to one journal, the water had become so thick and slimy, it had to be strained between the teeth. Gosh. But Valparaiso wasn't to be reached. Another storm caught up the ship and blew them off course. Captain Richardson would choose not to fight this storm and redirect the ship to the Juan Fernandez Islands over 360 miles off the coast of Chile. Quick side note, if you recognize the name of those islands, it's because they are the same ones made famous in the novel Robinson Crusoe. Now, making it to these islands was an amazing feat when you consider the captains at the time only had maps and rudimentary instruments to study the stars to navigate the waters. How simple and easy it would have been to be blown off course and miss the islands and die from exposure or lack of supplies. However, although they were directed to the islands, the storm took another victim. Pregnant Laura Goodwin would fall during the storm and leave behind her husband and seven children. Her husband didn't want her buried at sea like everyone else, so they'd wait until they had landed on the San Fernandez Islands and bury her on land. Now, as we've been discussing all the first things this trip accomplished, this was probably the first funeral held for a member of the church in the Southern Hemisphere. Through it all, the members only grew stronger in their faith. 
Regarding the storm blowing them off course to empty islands, William Glover would record in his journal, quote, If we had gone to Valparaiso, it would have cost us hundreds of dollars, thus showing to us the hand of the Lord and his overruling providence and care for his people, end quote. On the islands, they would replenish their supplies, including getting fresh water, and finally set sail. On board, another baby was born. Phoebe Robbins would name her daughter Georgiana Pacific Robbins, another great name. They'd make one more stop in Hawaii, where sadly another child would die on the voyage, before moving on and finally arriving in Yerba Buena, California on July 31st, 1846. Now, the village of Yerba Buena had about 150 people. Most were Mexicans and a few were Spaniards. And, surprisingly to the Mormons, there was the U.S. military. When the Mormons set sail in February of 1846, they were leaving America for California. But while at sea, they learned that the United States had annexed California in war with Mexico and that only three weeks earlier, a U.S. warship had sailed into Yerba Buena, planted the U.S. flag, and had taken over that Mexican village. So, they were back in America again. But at least they were finally on dry ground. Now, what role did the voyage of the Brooklyn play then and today? When the Mormons landed in Yerba Buena, they had no idea where Brigham Young and the rest of the members of the church were at. So they settled into the city and founded a new settlement just to the north. Six months after settling in California, they'd finally received word on the rest of the church when members of the Mormon battalion called to fight in the Mexican-American War, would meet them in Yerba Buena. By the end of 1846, most of the settlers in California were Mormons. And by 1847, there were over 500 members in California, and Yerba Buena would be considered a Mormon town. The people there would decide that they liked the name San Francisco better and would take that on, thus truly founding San Francisco for the United States. Now, what role did the Brooklyn play? Just recapping here, they were the first colony of home seekers with women and children to sail around the tip of South America, the first Anglo settlers to come to California by ocean, the first group of colonists to arrive after the United States forces took California, and possibly the longest continuous sea voyage taken by a faith-based group to that point. To add to all of that, their contributions to San Francisco were enormous. They built the first public school, the first bank, the first wheat that was grown, and the first library and newspaper, thanks to Brandon's printing press that made the voyage. Now, most of the Mormons that landed in San Francisco would like it there and stay there for the rest of their lives. Samuel Brannan would make his way to Salt Lake City and meet Brigham Young, who was settling Salt Lake City with the rest of the church. Brannan would try to convince Brigham to bring the Mormons to California, but Brigham would decline. Brannan would go back to California and in 1847, Brandon would move to Sutter's Fort in present-day Sacramento, California. There, Brandon would begin to publish word that gold was being found in the mountains. Brandon was known to run up and down the streets of San Francisco, just spreading the word, screaming, gold, gold on the American River. As newspaper reporters started publishing in this in the East, this would spark the gold rush of 1849. As Brandon had the only store in Sacramento region, He struck it rich, selling equipment to the miners. It's estimated that his store was doing more than $150,000 a month in 1849. He invested in land, the first California steam engine, and helped eventually provide a team name for the San Francisco 49ers. Okay, I added that last part in. 
Now, how can you see the ship Brooklyn today? You can't. It's become lost to time. However, San Francisco has constructed a plaque that can be found in the Northeast Waterfront Historic District. It commemorates the landing of the Brooklyn. It mentions those involved and the work that was done to settle the new country. Now, what happened to that Mormon settlement in San Francisco? It was eventually torn down and built over and is now Chinatown. So, that's it for the Mormon pioneers crossing the sea. Let's get back to those crossing the plains in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects, Episode 36, The Ship Brooklyn. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And again, I know I beat this drum quite a bit. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it, subscribe, or leave a comment on iTunes. It helps me spread the word. Thanks again for listening.